Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. D-Day, President Trump and Joe Biden face off in the first presidential debate. COVID's cost, the World Bank warns the pandemic is condemning millions to poverty in East Asia. And Sparkle lost, LVMH says Tiffany faces a, quote, dismal future as it tries to escape that multi-billion dollar takeover deal. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Once again, fantastic to be with you on D-Day, as we're calling it here in the United States. D, of course, stands for debate. The first face-to-face matchup between President Trump and Joe Biden taking place tonight. We'll talk debate strategy with former Obama campaign manager Jim Messina. That's coming up later this hour. Plus, superstar fund manager and China critic, he calls himself a realist, let's be clear, Carl Bass on why Beijing should remain a key focus There's clearly no debating that tonight is a big event for investors too. Futures at this moment a little cautious. It does follow a strong start to the trading week yesterday, beating down energy and financial stocks leading the charge. In fact, we actually saw 11 out of 12 sectors of the S&P 500 rising in the session yesterday. It could be a positive, but also suggests some window dressing. So buying or rebalancing as the quarter ends after a few tough weeks. Skepticism aside too, sentiment may have been helped by House Democrats unveiling an updated $2.2 trillion emergency aid plan. The two sides, the Democrats and the Republicans, are talking, but I have to say a deal still feels remote this side of the election. What about in Europe? Well, we're seeing consolidation there too after the best day of trading since June in the session yesterday. The pound trading higher earlier too after a Bank of England official pushed back on the future use of negative rates. So a sigh of relief on that front. What about in Asia? Well, there's IPO buzz in the air. E-commerce delivery firm ZTO Express rose some 9% after its secondary listing debuted in Hong Kong. It already trades in New York. And in South Korea, too, shares of K-pop music label Big Hit Entertainment, the home of boy band superstars BTS, have priced well ahead of their October debut. They've priced well. Let me be clear on the pricing there. Now, the two men taking stage in Cleveland are higher tonight, hoping to score some hits too. And that's where we begin the drivers. The first presidential debate of 2020. Millions of voters and others around the world will watch President Trump and Joe Biden square off on all the big issues, including the COVID crisis, the outlook for the U.S. economy, not to mention the recent revelations about the president's financial affairs. Joe Johns joins us now on this. Joe, hotly and highly anticipated, lots of key issues to describe. The framing, I think, of the two gentlemen tonight going to be very, very different. Absolutely right. Uh, Framing is everything when you think about it. But among the issues that we expect to hear about, certainly the New York Times report showing that the president's finances appear to be a mess, that he's taken a lot of questionable write-offs and other issues. That's likely to come up in this debate. And uh, the president's people here have said publicly that they think the piece in the New York Times was a hit piece, a hit job, whatever. 
but if you listen to the surrogates for the president who were already out on TV today framing the issue, as you say, Julia, uh, they're also making clear that the president's substantive response is going to be to say, number one, that he paid more taxes than the article showed, and, and but also that he took uh, as many write-offs and took advantage, in other words, of the tax code as much as he could, as much as any other American would have been entitled to. And that, of course, falls right in line with the same kinds of arguments about his taxes he made to Hillary Clinton in the debates four years ago. But big picture, the number one issue that Americans likely will be tuning in to hear about will be coronavirus, the Trump administration's response to it, and the economic fallout from all of that. So uh, expectation game, this obviously is a very important moment for the president of the United States. He's been trailing Joe Biden in the, pay, in the, in the uh, polls for weeks. But uh, the fact of the matter is this president is also a very uh, skillful debater. If you look at the way he handled Hillary Clinton uh, with the insults, with the sharp language, interrupting uh, generally the kinds of things that you think normally don't play very well apparently played quite well for him four years ago so uh, as you say again Julia framing is everything and there will be a lot for both sides to frame yes and will it be the same playbook as 2016 or will the president go about this differently we shall see Joe Johns thank you so much for that update there and you can watch the debate Play out live on CNN with special coverage tonight starting at 7 p.m. in New York, midnight in London and 7 a.m. in Hong Kong. Now, let's move on. The coronavirus pandemic has crossed a disturbing new threshold. More than one million people worldwide have now died from the virus and there's no sign that it's slowing down. The U.S. ranks at the very top of the list in terms of numbers of COVID fatalities CNN's Paula Newton takes a look at some of those lives lost. It's a grim milestone no one wanted to reach. One million dead from COVID-19. And yet in less than one year, the coronavirus has taken so many. I didn't get to say goodbye to my mom or my dad now. And that's what hurts me the most right now. Mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, children, and of course, grandparents with no mercy. The spread of the virus so fast, so indiscriminate, striking those tasked with fighting the disease. Doctors, nurses, first responders, taking away those very souls who stepped into the eye of the storm to protect others from its deadly reach. The trail of sorrow worldwide now incomprehensible. With historic speed, researchers are trying to develop a vaccine, a way to lessen the vice grip from this invisible enemy, amidst the reality that in some countries, a second wave has already begun. And accusations from some, it never had to get this bad, if only people followed life-saving health measures. Adeline passed away because of COVID. This isn't a hoax, and if you can do something as simple as wearing a mask, everyone is being affected by this. As the numbers of lost loved ones rises higher every day, the toll the COVID-19 pandemic has exacted on those who survive may never truly be known. For my daddy to just die, 
by himself and not, it just hurts my heart. <laughs> for those who mourn, another blow. Not just longing for those they love as they succumb to the virus, but also isolation in grief. In-person funerals, memorials, a luxury of the pre-COVID era, one that those who want to keep living don't dare risk. Paula Newton, CNN. The lives lost, just one measure of the devastation caused by COVID-19. The World Bank says poverty in East Asia is set to rise for the first time in decades as a result of the pandemic. Almost 40 million people could find themselves below the poverty line there. John Defteris has been looking at this report for us. John, some devastating numbers in these. The thing that stood out to me, the just to get a sense of the scale of the crisis here, the, the sheer quantity, proportion of households that have lost some form of earnings. And in nations like Indonesia and Cambodia, it's astonishingly high. Yes, you're looking at the range of 79 to well over 80 percent, uh, Julia, which is pretty shocking. Uh, this is uh, COVID-19, the job destroyer, and then tilting millions, as you're suggesting, over the edge, but also creating the new COVID-19 poor, as the World Bank is calling it, because it reached right in to the lower middle class, which is extremely unusual. Uh, they're calling it the triple shock syndrome. And what do I mean by that? You have the, the death rates of the pandemic early on, and then the severe lockdown as stage two. And then stage three, it undermines very important sectors in these economies. Two that stood out for me as I poured through that report, uh, exports, uh, number one, because these are all engines for growth uh, in the low-cost labor countries of Southeast Asia in particular, uh, and tourism, right, because nobody's traveling. And then you look at some of the fallen stars of Asia that stand out for me. It's incredible, some of the uh, economic uh, contractions that we're seeing. Thailand down by 10%, the Philippines nearly 10%, Malaysia better than 6%. And the common theme there, Julie, is quite interesting because it's uh, farm exports or palm oil, for example, in Malaysia because the demand has dropped so severely. Even Vietnam, which is a star, as you well know, the supply chain uh, factory uh, system all over the world, still had 33% major income destruction in the Vietnam. And then the big number we have to remember here, Julia, over a half a billion, because we saw the rates in poverty dropping for years in Asia. If you add 38 to that number, it takes us to 517, a horrible sign indeed, uh, as COVID-19, the toll still adds up. Yeah, John, you know, I'm just looking at these numbers again and in aggregate, I just, I wonder to what extent China is perhaps raising the average levels of the numbers that we're talking about here. Well, it's a fantastic point you're bringing up because it skewed the numbers uh, in, in the, for the better. Let's put it that way. Uh, China, because of the scale of its economy, at uh, better than $14 trillion. It's scheduled to grow this year in 2020 at 2%. It actually lifted people out of the poverty uh, system uh, overall. So again, that tilted the numbers in favor of Far East Asia. It would have been much, much worse, Julie, which is pretty shocking in itself. And then the other thing that stands out for me, and I think the World Bank is being far too ambitious here, they're suggesting that China very likely will get the uh, vaccines earlier, could grow nearly 8% in 2021. 20, uh, that seems very high. And then they're suggesting for the region, regional growth of 5%. Again, I would imagine, Julie, and I'm sure you agree with me on this, that vaccine distribution in some of the poorer countries that we're talking about that saw the income destruction taking place will not see growth uh, snapping back that quickly. So I would say a washout in the first half of 2021 
and a struggle to get those vaccines distributed in some of the poorer countries in Far East Asia in the second half of the year. Yeah, that's why the richer nations in the world need to be coming together to organise this and make sure we get those vaccines to those people as soon as possible. Record amounts spent on social programmes, of course, to tackle this pandemic. But the World Bank here is saying efforts to liberalise economies, increase social safety nets are desperately required. It's just tough to do in a crisis of any kind. John Defterry, thank you for that. All right, LVMH and the Tiffany Romance souring further still, if that's even possible. The French luxury goods group is countersuing the American jewellery retailer, blasting its business practices as it tries to back out of a proposed acquisition. Paul and Monica has the details. Paul, not surprising here because they bought at the absolute high here, but some really strong language, dismal prospects, performance since COVID catastrophic, LVMH not holding back. No, this has turned into a bad romance, to quote a Lady Gaga song here. I I really am surprised, though, Julia, that LVMH is taking this strong of a stance when Tiffany has counter-argued that when you look at their latest results, they returned to profitability in their most recent quarter. So, yes, they obviously did get hit hard, like just about every retailer in America and around the world, for that matter, due to store closures and a consumer spending slowdown in light of COVID-19. But Tiffany did point out that it's back to profitability. It has stores open again. So their counter argument to uh, what LVMH is claiming is saying that, you know, it's baseless to make this claim that they've had a material adverse effect. You know, Tiffany also is arguing that LVMH's uh, claims that the French government told them to not do the deal That might be flawed as well, because Tiffany's claiming that LVMH only uh, received a response to a request that it sent the French government first about the deal so that it might not have been necessarily that the French government told the LVMH to not do it, but that LVMH asked first and then basically got approval from the French government to scrap the deal. It's a great point. Investors clearly getting increasingly nervous as well as we inch away from that. What was it? $135 bid. We're trading at $116 now. To be continued. Paul, you get it. The phrase of the show, bad romance. Paula Monica, thank you for that. All right. Still to come here on First Move. Debate prep. The man who helped President Obama take on Mitt Romney in 2012 discusses tonight's TV duel. That's former campaign chief Jim Messina joins First Move and Palantir's unconventional route to Wall Street. The Silicon Valley firm with some shadowy government con- contracts goes public. We get Scott Galloway's take on the company. He's not polite, nor does he hold back. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Live from New York, we're expecting a muted start to the session today after yesterday's gains of around 1.5% or more. That's the picture. Economically sensitive for small caps with the big winners overall on Monday. The Russell 2000 up more than 2%. A bit of context, though. The Russell's still the big Wall Street laggard this year, down some 10% year to date, as you can see. Now, 
In the meantime, the countdown continues ahead of tonight's presidential debate in battleground state Ohio. As we wrap up the month and the quarter this week, we'll have fresh U.S. job numbers Friday to watch and the start of another earnings season, too. So it's going to be a busy week. It may also be the final earnings season for the parent company of Chinese social media app Weibo, who's quitting Wall Street. This, as the U.S. ramps up scrutiny of China's tech firms, Sinecore listed on the Nasdaq 20 years ago, its CEO now taking it private in a deal that values the company at some $2.6 billion. There's lots to discuss. I'm pleased to say uh, joining us now, Carl Bass, Chief Investment Officer at Heyman Capital Management, joins us now. Carl, always great to have you on the show. Do you think we see more than this, more of this? Chinese companies listed in the United States leaving, perhaps less listings going forward too. Yes, I mean, I think it's for, for two reasons. Number one, what, what China is starting to figure out is that the U.S. is no longer going to allow Chinese companies to list on our exchanges and have much easier listing uh, rules and characteristics than U.S. companies do. You know, they, they don't submit themselves to real audits. Can you imagine how much fraud is in the Chinese companies that are actually unaudited? Uh, so I think at a cer- certain point in time, China figured out that uh, they need to start moving listings to exchanges they control, like the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And even Jack Ma made a public pronouncement and said, uh, Chinese entrepreneurs list now in Hong Kong, i.e. you better get listed before things get tougher. And I, I think that's what drove this Ant Financial uh, or Ant Group IPO uh, f- brought it forward. It was supposed to be public in, call it, uh, the middle of 2021. And here we are with the preliminary prospectus out today, and we're talking about a $30 billion capital raise for Ant Group. Just to be clear, why might things get tougher? Simply because you lose the option of listing in the United States, or there could be potential challenges in listing at all, wherever you do it in the world? Yeah, no, I think that, uh, look, what the only way the U.S. is going to level the playing field, we all know that the Chinese uh, government is the world's best at lying, cheating, stealing, bribing, whatever they have to do to get forward in the world. And so what we're going to do is start enforcing our domestic laws. We are going to level the playing field by saying, you know what, Chinese companies are going to have to adhere to PCAOB covered audits just like U.S. companies do today. Again, uh, this concept of leveling the playing field and not not particularly being difficult or more stringent against Chinese issuers, just say everyone around the globe has to play by the same rules, uh, will actually uh, allow U.S. companies to compete uh, in a a more balanced way. And I, I think that you see a whole of government approach in the United States headed towards that particular outcome. And so I think it's just going to be if Chinese companies won't submit to real audits, they're going to have to find somewhere else, another sandbox to go play in. Ant Group chose Hong Kong. It chose Shanghai for a dual listing. It could be the biggest IPO that we've ever seen. I mean, some rumors are $30 billion. What do international investors in particular need to be aware of with this one? Because in the last 24 hours, you've been a prolific tweeter on the subject. Yeah, I just, you know, when you read through the prospectus and you uh, you understand what Ant Group is, uh, you know, Ant Group and Alibaba own MegV, are they have big? They have big investments in MegV, which is a, a blacklisted company by the U.S. Commerce Department for uh, helping the Chinese assimilate uh, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and basically commit crimes against humanity uh, in Xinjiang and Tibet and Mongolia. 
they own a number of different AI companies. They have actually, they're one of the eight companies in the in the in the China that's chosen by the Chinese government to put together the social credit scoring system. That's this Orwellian dystopian system of um, giving each individual person in China a personal credit score and deciding whether whether or not they can fly, whether or not they can uh, have a have a bank account, and all of the different things, the quote freedoms that the Chinese government allows their people. Uh, you know, Ant Group is an amalgamation of military civil fusion, and it's something that uh, China desperately wants to raise capital for. And uh, so you're going to see, I think you're going to see a $30 billion deal or more uh, in Hong Kong and, and Shanghai. And, and this is this is the Chinese government's uh, um, modus operandi today. I think we should say for balance as well, I believe it's a passive investment um, in terms of uh, the Megvi technology that you mentioned. And I know that the concerns were raised in a Human Rights Watch report back in 2019 about the use of this company in surveillance of, uh, of Uyghur Muslims. They then retracted Human Rights Watch, the segment of that. But of course, the Commerce Department then acted afterwards. And the credit report company, uh, Zima Credit, they stated back in 2017 in an interview with the Financial Times that uh, that they didn't provide data to the Chinese government. Carl, I know what you're going to say in response. I mean, come on. Like Xi Jinping stood in the Rose Garden and told President Obama he wasn't militarizing the South China Sea, but our satellites actually uh, uh, said otherwise. So, you know, the Chinese, again, the Chinese government is the most prolific liar in the world. And we have to stop taking them for their word and looking at look at their actions. And I, that's what the Commerce Department and our intelligence sources do. We're not we're not doing this. Uh, flippantly. We understand what's happening and we're following what's happening. And I think you're going to see more sanctions. I think um, I think we still have the Huawei uh, question on, on the uh, on the agenda. And I think you're going to see ZTE uh, be kicked out of the United States. I mean, there are so many wrongs that have that have been uh, proliferated by the Chinese Communist Party that uh, we just need to clean clean house. And I think we're doing so. If we're talking about a company, though, like Ant Group or Alibaba, there is huge benefits. I mean, they they have the payment structure. They offer insurance products, loan products, for example. The Chinese government also recognized the power, the benefits, the utility benefits of these companies. But it's very difficult for these companies to turn around and go, hey, we are definitely not going to give our data to the Chinese government, even if they would refuse behind the scenes, because then they put themselves in direct conflict with the Chinese government. Would you acknowledge that? They do have power. You know, of course, I think, I think, Julia, what we're talking about is an ideological difference in the manner in which we operate our world, right? Um, they are a totalitarian communist government, and we are a democracy that plays by global standards and global rules. And they, they play by their own rules. In fact, there are no rules for them. And so the answer is yes, i.e., uh, should we do business with companies that share all of their data with the Chinese government? Should we do business with companies uh, that that basically bring military and civil fusion to China when they are deemed to be our number one strategic adversary? I actually, as you can probably tell, I don't believe we should interface with them. I think we should let Alibaba uh, and Ant Group deal with themselves and let them run their big company in Southeast Asia, but we shouldn't allow them to do business in the United States unless they unless they become a proper global actor. Uh, you know, I don't know how how we can interface with a regime 
that is actually committing cultural and ethnic genocides in various areas of the country. And yet somehow CNN and CNBC and the others give them uh, the air and the time to say, you know what, we're going to do something great for climate change by 20, 2060. I mean, the, the, these particular uh, uh, mutually exclusive statements make no sense to me. And, Kyle, and I don't know why, we report the news. It was the news and there was plenty of scepticism, I can tell you, in the coverage of that with regards to the 2060 uh, carbon neutral. On that point, and I have a million questions for you. They have vested interest, surely, in tackling this. They have a pollution problem that's killing people in the country. So it is one of their pillars to try and at least tackle the pollution problem in China. I agree. They're, they are the worst incremental polluter of any country in the world. Okay, so we'll, we'll come back to that. You said sanctions will increase. I think the other point I have to make here is, and the Ant Group IPO sort of plays against a position that you have, which is short Hong Kong. You're very, very cautious about Hong Kong, about the currency in particular. We've had this discussion on the show before. There will be those that look at this once again and say, you're negative on this IPO and what surrounds it because it plays against that trade. Carl, your response. Yeah, I mean... I call the spade the spade, and um, that's I put my money where my mouth is. And um, you know, I think there are many commentators out there that also, you know, are, are uh, let's say pro-China that have their money where their mouth is. You know, from my perspective, this trade will come and go, Julia. And my opinion on China and Hong Kong will never change unless the regime changes. So uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, you're consistent. I 100% give you that. You also promised to give every person in your contact book a billion dollars by 2060 if they actually hit that target. <laughs> Speaking of putting money where mouth is. That's an easy bet. <laughs> Kyle, great to have you on the show. Thank you for your wisdom as Thank always. Kyle Bass, great Chief to- Investment Officer at Heyman Capital Management. Great to chat to you. All right, after the break, a former Obama campaign manager weighs in on tonight's big presidential debate. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stock markets are open and running this Tuesday. As expected, a bit of a softer open, as you can see, I'll call that relatively unchanged. Investors hoping, I think, for a clear-cut winner in tonight's first presidential debate, just to give us a sense of greater clarity here. A Biden win, perhaps then look to green energy stocks for a lift. A Trump win could help firms benefiting from low taxes. Of course, Biden has suggested he would raise taxes after the election if he wins. Investors also hoping to hear the White House response to the new $2.2 trillion emergency aid plan from the Democrats. The presidential debate, too, is expected to pull in a colossal global TV audience. The White House press secretary says the president has done enough preparation and that he's helped by the hostile questions he receives from the press every day. The media dubbed my next guest Mr. Fixer during his tenure at the Obama White House. Jim Messina masterminded his successful re-election campaign in 2020. He's the CEO of the Messina Group and he joins us now. Jim, fantastic to have you with us. Mr. Fixer hat on. How would you be advising uh, Joe Biden ahead of this debate? And how do you think he does? Well, look, I think this is the most consequential presidential debate since 1980. You have a president who trails in the national polls by seven points. You have a challenger who has a lead but needs to kind of solidify it with the country and make his case 
on where he wants to take it. So as we sit 35 days before the election, I think Vice President Biden tonight just has to withstand the barrage that is certainly going to come from the president. Donald Trump is known as a very strong debater. He takes no quarter and is going to go right after the vice president. And the vice president has to just continue to do what he's done, which is stay calm and talk about his message to these swing voters. You know, there are less swing voters in America than any country in the world. We are more partisan than any other country. And this is the first time these swing voters who are going to decide this election are actually going to kind of watch the debate and figure out who they're going to vote for. So I don't think tonight could be any more important to both campaigns. Okay, you raised some great points there. Do you think preparation helps in this case? Because the president said, look, I'm too busy running the country. Obama, Biden, my apologies. The Biden campaign have suggested that, that Joe Biden is prepared and has been prepping for this. Have lessons been learned from how President Trump behaves on a debate stage? Because we saw what he did with Hillary Clinton four years ago. Yeah, it's a great point. And you know, here's a little statistic. Uh, the incumbent president has lost the first debate in every debate in the last 40 years. And the huh. reason is they're used to kind of they're used to, you know, getting long time to answer questions to reporters or not used to having people really push back. And when I was President Obama's campaign manager, we lost the first debate worse than anyone had lost a presidential debate and then we're able to recover it. On the other hand, you know, President Trump is in Twitter every day going back and forth, pushing hard. He's done a couple smart things. He's done a couple town halls. He did a town hall with uh, George Stephanopoulos recently to try to get himself back in the, the back and forth. Uh, and so it'll be a real question. You know, Biden had 15 debates in the primary season, which will help him. But there isn't anyone who debates like Donald Trump. You know, I think the expectation is that Trump has to win tonight. And he sort of set that up for himself. And I think it'll be an incredibly interesting night. I plan to get a bunch of popcorn and a wine and, and watch this thing. I cannot wait. Oh, I have to say, I've had people all around the globe telling me that, quite frankly. Do you think they'll be held to a different standard? in terms of the way that they interact, their behavior, the language that they use. Uh, there's very little, I think, that surprises us in terms of where President Trump is willing to go. Joe Biden's a different person, and I think there is a level of exhaustion out there with hate, anger. Oh, absolutely right. And that's part of the challenge for Biden, right? He can't let Trump drag him down. Trump is going to come after his son. He's going to come after his family. He's going to do a bunch of things. And, you know, in the Obama world, we used to call it don't chase rabbits, which mean don't go into holes that your opponent wants you to. Don't answer every charge. Don't don't take every bait. Instead, what Joe Biden has to do is just stay calm, be the kind of blue collar lunch pail Joe that people really like that has a seven point lead nationally and just talk about the future and connect with these voters. And if he can avoid getting in a, you know, a scrap with the president on every single question, that will be incredibly beneficial. Now, President Trump has a different challenge. He just has to take the fight to Biden. He's behind, he's in trouble, and he's just got to pull Biden down with him. And so, you know, those two competing interests are going to be the story of this debate. You know, it's quite fascinating. We were just showing a Monmouth poll there that said three in four voters will be watching 
this debate tonight. But when you look at the statistics for the number of people that will make a decision based on this, it goes to the point that you made right at the beginning of this conversation. It's just 3%. 3% saying that what they hear tonight may sway them in terms of, of how they vote. So why does this matter ultimately, Jim? Because this is the first time these kind of 3% are really looking at this and saying, hey, you know, where is this race and who are these two candidates? I have a theory that this country's decided to fire President Trump. The question for them is, is Joe Biden the person they want to hire? And that's his challenge tonight. But to your point on the polls, there's a poll out in the state of Wisconsin, which is the most important battleground state in America, with the race at 49-48, meaning only 3% of people in the entire state are left with 35 days left. Here's another statistic. You know, everyone's voting right now. We have early vote in the United States, and people are getting their vote by mails, and they're voting early. By the next debate, over half the country in some of these battleground states will have already voted. So this is the moment where a bunch of people are looking at this saying, okay, here's the night, tell me who to vote for. And that's why it's such a big moment tonight. Yeah, who do you trust to get us through the next four years? Jim, great to have you with us. We shall see. Jim Messina, CEO of the Messina Group and enjoy your popcorn, sir. (laughs) All right. He was the first to invest in Facebook. Now he's taking another company he co-founded public. But there's one or two unusual things about Peter Thiel's Palantir and its listing. We'll discuss next. Welcome back to First Move, a new week, a new crop of U.S. tech firms set to go public on Wall Street. Plantier Technologies, the secretive data mining firm, is set to make its NYSE debut. It won't be a traditional IPO, though. It's a direct listing. So the company won't be raising any money as only existing shares are being sold. Plantier is relatively unusual in other ways, too. The majority of shares will remain controlled by its executives, including the tech investor and PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel. Plantier does have one thing in common with many other unicorns going public. It hasn't made a profit since it was founded 17 years ago. Joining us now, Scott Galloway is a professor of marketing at the New York University School Stern School of Business. Scott, always great to have you on the show. You don't often hold back, but on this one, you're really punchy. What is it specifically that you most dislike about this company? Uh, The notion that uh, from the good people at Facebook, we're bringing you a company whose mission is to be the operating system for government. If you look at some of the most impressive people in business, whether it's Reed Hastings, Ken Chenal, Susan Desmond Hellman, um, Erskine Balls, they all have one thing in common, and that is they were so uncomfortable with the governance of Facebook, they decided to leave the board early. But the one constant there has been Peter Thiel. So if you think that if you think that maybe there's some problems or some issues around governance or concern for our Commonwealth at Facebook, would you want the kind of wizard behind the curtain there to have total control of a company whose mission is to be the operating system for surveillance for the government? So I don't think a lot of people think, yeah, I really like how Facebook has handled the responsibilities. I'd like to see more of that in terms of government and decisions around who the FBI surveils. So I think there's some very legitimate concerns here. In a blog post that you wrote about this, you said Palantir is all the calories of Facebook, scaled sociopathy with none of the great taste profits. Scott, be specific. If we take Peter Thiel out of it, 
Is it when you look at what the company does, when you look at who their clients are? Because a vast chunk of their clients are government contracts. Yeah, so uh, a lot of the controversy and the things I'm talking about, I think the company likes. The company wants to create this spy versus spy, opaque illusion and mystery. And as purposely said, they're working for the government and they embrace working with the U.S. government, which I believe is actually a, a very valid uh, statement. But it's all meant to distract you from one thing, Julie, and that's this is a terrible business. It took Google three years, Facebook five and Amazon seven to become profitable. This company, as you pointed out, has been around for 17 years, has raised and spent $3 billion, and last year lost $500 million on $750 million in revenue. They claim in their perspectives that their growth is largely dependent upon the incompetence of government. The government last year, with a record deficit, lost $0.30 cents on the dollar. Palantir lost $0.60 cents on the dollar. I would argue the government should be consulting to Palantir. So there's a lot of noise meant to distract you from one thing. This is a terrible business. Okay, so don't get distracted by what they say they're doing or the benefits, perhaps, of uh, government contracts. You call and point out word mentions in their filing for this listing, rights, privacy, individuals. I mean, that not that a contradiction in terms of what we're talking about here, in terms of the government contracts and the, and the software that they're used for? Yeah, again, this this feels like the Rudy Giuliani of tech. It, you just listen to it for a minute and it begins contradicting itself. Uh, Peter Thiel is a known libertarian. Lib, to my understanding, libertarian philosophy is small government and individual liberty, unless, of course, you're getting contracts from the government to expand the scope of government to begin surveilling uh, immigrants or citizens. I mean, it just kind of makes no sense. And then you have a CEO who is all of a sudden claiming he's a socialist despite paying himself $15 million a year. This is a company with 120 clients, uh, three of whom account for 30% of the business. It's clearly an interesting business. It's it's more of a services business, I would argue, with um, a strong technology component. So if you look at comparables like an Arthur Anderson, which is massively profitable, but trades at three to four times revenues, you're talking about a company that in most markets, wouldn't be worth the amount of money it's raised. So this is, uh, it's a strange company. I think they are purposely promoting these contradictions and the story and the strangeness because they don't want people to look at the underlying fundamentals of what is a terrible business that would unlikely have any hopes of getting public in any other market but what is arguably the most frothiest market we've seen, we've seen since 1999. I mean, it's fascinating when you look at the, the scale of the losses here. There was an improvement to uh, $165 million net loss in the first half of, of 2020, I believe. I mean, these, these losses are larger than you expect for a software company that is expected to make, what, a billion dollars in, in revenue this year. I think the argument for these kind of companies would be, look, the revenues are growing. Don't look at the losses. Um, I'm just struggling to, to counter your argument here based on some of the numbers that I'm seeing. Yeah, it just doesn't. Again, it's they've purposely fomented all this spy versus spy about finding Osama bin Laden and wrapping themselves in a flag and claiming they're a different type of technology company because they moved to Denver. Uh, but this is all meant to say, look over here. Uh, they don't publish with most SaaS companies. You want to talk about boring stuff like renewal rates and dollar renewal, but they don't want to talk about it because they're awful here. Uh, the majority of their new products have failed miserably. They have significantly high pro profile clients within the government, 
and private companies that have decided after using the product for a year that they're not going to renew. And this is a company where it feels like the existing shareholders are running for the door. And yet you put on top of that, the chaser here is terrible governments, two-class shareholder system, where the individual who is the primary, the static figure of governance at Facebook will control this company even if he sells his stake. This is, you know, this is shavings of ugly on an ugly salad. And I, I, I don't, this is an indication, if this isn't a canary in the coal mine, if this thing trades up, it's an ostrich in the coal mine. This is not only a, a threat, in my opinion, to our commonwealth, but it's just a terrible business where I would argue, th you know, crap is being flung at tourists to the unicorn zoo here. I just don't think this, this company makes any sense. Wow, that's one heck of an analogy, uh, Scott. You know, the interesting thing is I believe the vast majority of the stock that's coming up here and that will be listed has a 180-day lockup period. What's the likelihood that we see a similar snowflake style, what feels like a huge squeeze uh, as this thing comes to, uh, comes to market and those stocks begin to trade? Investors need to be wary of where we are as a point in time. Take a step back. What does this say about the market at this moment? And I think investors' ability to value companies like this or willingness to value companies like this. Well, that's the correct question, Joel. We have the perfect storm of good things. If you're a, a data company or a big data company or a tech company that is perceived as a disruptor, you've had entire swaths of the consumer economy, the retail economy, the real estate economy that have been prohibited from the public market. So there's a dearth of companies coming public. At the same time, institutional investors have, have never had more money to deploy. So if you're a disruptor, you're tech, you're SaaS, it is good to be you. And we saw Snowflake, which has 3,400 clients, by the way, and is easier to ramp up and easier to dial up and dial down, go out at a remarkable valuation. And so Palantir is hoping that some of that sunshine will glean on them. But this feels, I mean, th <laughs> this feels eerily reminiscent of 99 when people abandoned the consumer economy and then started going to B2B. It feels like anything with the term SaaS in it trades up hysterically. So, you know, it's difficult to time the markets. It's difficult to predict the markets. But by all reasonable measures in the past, the fundamentals here just don't justify the valuation. And I would look for a lot of existing shareholders to run for the door here. It is a great time to be a seller in this market. Would you be selling Snowflake really quickly? I have about 20 seconds. Uh, I think Snowflake is an incredible company. That's a better business. The question is whether it's worth its multiple of revenues. So I, you know, that's a tough one. I would say that is a underlying, that is a great business that may be overvalued. Palantir right now is one of those things. <laughs> Scott, great to have you with us. Scott Galloway, Professor of Marketing at the New York University. Great to have you with us. Right, and we've extended an invitation, I should be made clear, to the Palantir executives to come on our show and respond to uh, the criticism here. So open invite to them. All right, up next, out of runway, nearly 50,000 US jobs could be lost Thursday when restrictions on airlines laying off employees expire. We've got the details next. Welcome back to First Move. Airline industry group Hiata says 25 million jobs globally are at risk in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. In the U.S., workers are bracing for mass layoffs expected to begin Thursday. Nearly 50,000 jobs could be on the line. 
United Airlines has agreed not to furlough any of its pilots until at least next June. But as Pete Montine reports, others might not be so lucky. I'm here with just one request. Airline CEOs are making a new plea on Capitol Hill to avoid a layoff cliff only days away. Please, Congress, we need you to do your job and we need you to do it now. A new CNN analysis finds nearly 50,000 airline workers are facing furloughs that begin October 1st. It'd be a very, very uh, horrific event, I think, uh, if that happens, given all the support. Doug Parker is the CEO of American Airlines. It's an involuntary furlough notices to 17,500 of its workers. At United Airlines, the new number is 12,000. The furloughs industry-wide from mechanics and gate agents to pilots and flight attendants like Angela Fred. It's very emotional and, and, you know, I'm scared for myself. I'm scared for my friends. This is real people moving their stuff into their cars and trying to figure out how to survive. This new push means a new bailout for airlines. A new bill would give carriers $28 billion to keep workers on the payroll through next March. This is taking longer and is deeper than most people expected six months ago. New TSA figures show air travel remains stalled at 30% of last year's levels. Airlines are losing millions of dollars a day flying planes that are only two-thirds full. But more help is facing new slowdowns. The Capitol is now consumed with a Supreme Court pick. House Democrats want airline assistance in a larger recovery package. Industry leaders say they need to know now whether workers will be saved. Six months from now, um, I really don't believe we'll be anything close to this level uh, of furloughs and, and hopefully zero. Pete Mundine, CNN, Washington. Thursday, that deadline. And that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Great to be with you. I'm Julia Chasley. Stay safe and we'll see you soon. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.